beans on toast, tuna for a salad, or tomatoes for pasta sauce. When you forget to go to the grocery store, things in tin cans come in pretty handy, even if they aren't particularly exciting. I know I have plenty gathering dust in the back of my cupboard. But if you stop to think about it, the humble tin can is actually a bit of a modern miracle. The problem of food preservation is at least as old as agriculture. Humans have been very creative at finding ways to salt, dry, smoke, pickle, freeze and ferment foods to keep them edible after the harvest ends. Many of these traditions date back millennia and remain alive today. On the other hand, canning is remarkably new in comparison. Its 200th birthday was only in 2010, but it works almost unbelievably well. In 1974, some canned goods were retrieved from a wreck of a steamboat that sank in the Missouri River. When they were opened, the oysters, peaches and tomatoes were analyzed and found to be safe to eat, even after a hundred years underwater in tin cans. Though none of the scientists seemed to be too brave and eager or hungry enough to actually try them. You're listening to Season 5 of Red to Green, History for the Future of Food. Stick around till the end to see how this story might relate to our present and the future of food. Let's jump right in. You're listening to Red to Green, the audiobook style podcast on food tech and sustainability. Moving the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. Nicolas Appert was a French confectioner and chef and is credited as the father of canning. Familiar with using sugar to preserve sweets and fruits, he became interested in finding methods that could be used for other foods. Most traditional preservation methods lead to a loss of vitamins and other nutrients, which Appert wouldn't have known about. Quite fittingly for a French chef, he was more bothered about preserving flavors and texture. He set up a laboratory in the countryside and began painstakingly to refine his technique. He sealed and heated fruits, veg broths and stews in champagne bottles before moving on to glassware and special corks of his own design. Recipes for cooking foods in jars date back to the Romans. Still, Appert had an unusual enthusiasm for cleanliness and hygiene, which was special for his time. He paid great attention to detail, insisting on top-quality fresh produce. It took him 10 years of trial and error, but Appert worked out the key points that are the basis of industrial canning nowadays. So how does it work? If you put food in a container, get it hot enough for long enough, and seal it well enough, it will stay stable and edible pretty much indefinitely. Of course, Appert had no idea why this worked. It took another 50 years before Louis Pasteur found an answer. Heating the food kills off any microbes that would spoil it, and if the seal is good enough, no new ones can get in. Still, the process worked reliably, and Appert started a successful business selling his products locally and in Paris. Bias were delighted at having a taste of summer produce in the middle of winter. Apart from consumers, Appel also encountered interest from the French military. Oh, the military, as we see in all of these stories, the military and wars just push innovation forward. Frustrated by the difficulties of keeping his armies fed, 
In 1795, Napoleon offered a cash prize for a method to produce easily storable, transportable food. A pass and bottles of soup, beef stew and gravy, peas and beans for trials at sea. Despite the breakability of glass bottles, the Navy was impressed. A pair was awarded the 12,000 franc price on a condition that he would make his method public. That's roughly $48,000 in today's money. Barely three months after Pear's book came out in France, a patent for the method was filed in London. The UK was in a perfect place to commercialize the idea. It was ahead of France in terms of industrialization, investment capital and technical know-how. Inconveniently though, Britain and France were at war at the time. The canning method could have been considered a French military secret. It would have been impossible for a pair to file the patent there himself. It's still unclear if the British broker who registered it was working on a pair's behalf. The patent described receiving the ideas from a certain foreigner or just taking advantage of the situation. Either way, it was almost immediately purchased by a British engineer, Brian Donkin, who was keen to start some experiments on his own. Not with glass, but with tin plate. Duncan teamed up with some other industrialists, and work started on their preservatory, the world's first canned food factory. A ship's captain was persuaded to take samples of canned meats on a trip to Jamaica. Nearly a year later, four well-traveled tins were returned to the factory. The inventors ate the contents of one and sent the others to members of the royal family, who seemed to have enjoyed them. A contract for trials with the Royal Navy was set up soon after, all thanks to Victorian era's vision of influencer marketing. The technology still needed some work. The tin canisters were initially put together by hand. Two men working together could make around six per hour. The workplaces were not the safest either. Lids were sealed with a lead solder and tins destined for storage at sea were given a coat of red lead paint to avoid corrosion. Temperature control for the heating process was also unreliable. A report from the 1840s described how an operator was most ridiculously, tragically but also a bit comically, killed when an overheated canister burst, launching an entire scalding hot turkey at high speed. <laughs> oh my god, that is such a good vision. That could be from a movie. The quality control department also had its fair share of explosions. At Duncan's factory, all the finished tin cans were stored in a special chamber, heated to tropical temperatures for a month. This was to check they had been properly sealed. Bacteria that snuck into compromised cans produced gases that could make the container bulge out at the ends and sometimes burst if left too long. The well-sealed cans that made it out of the factory were pretty difficult to get into. The label on early canned military rations specified a hammer and chisel, and the instructions from the fancy London department store Fortum and Manson's described a pretty violent method for stabbing your way into your tin treats with a knife. A basic version of a home can opener appeared only in the 1860s, but the classic tooth-wheel design most people have now wasn't invented until 60 years later. So for a long time, people had to really work for the contents of their cans. Have you been enjoying this episode so far? 
the next time you open up your company's Slack or Discord channel, or you log into LinkedIn, maybe think about this episode or Red to Green in general and share it with your colleagues or your community. This really helps us a lot to keep doing Red to Green and keep delivering high quality content to you absolutely for free. Thank you so much and back to the episode. While it may have predated the technological marvel of the can opener, the 1851 Great Exhibition did supply plenty of other wonders. In the food hall, the six million people that visited were treated to exotic delights from all over the British Empire. Amongst the spices, seeds, pasta and preserved fruits were all kinds of tins and cans. A pair's nephew sent bottled truffles and peas from France. Donkin's firm supplied an already vintage 1813 can next to their current product range of everything from turtle soup to partridge. Canned products from as far away as America and Australia could also be found on display. Up to that point, canned foods had been out of the reach of most ordinary people, but the public's response was very positive and the market seemed to have been about to take off if a scandal hadn't been about to shake the industry. The British Navy had started feeding tin supplies to sick sailors to help them recover. By the mid-1840s, they decided to add canned meat to general daily ratios. But to do this, they had to keep costs down. They awarded their contracts to the cheapest supplier, which backfired massively. In January 1852, the Times reported that huge numbers of cans of meat in the Navy stores had gone off and had to be thrown away. The story dragged on for more than a year. Inspections at deposits around the country found tin cans of scammy meat full of decaying organs and unidentifiable pulp. One ship reported throwing more than 200 kilograms of meat overboard. Looking into that incident, they found that almost all the affected cans had been produced by one single supplier, Stephen Goldner. Goldner had been able to undercut his rivals by setting up his factory in what is now Romania. Labor was cheap and to start with, no one was looking at precisely what he was putting in his cans. Even worse, to reduce his costs further, he was using huge cans up to five and a half kilos, so large that the center of the can wouldn't have been appropriately heated during the processing and microbes in the meat would have survived. Estimates of how much Goldner's meat had to be thrown out varied wildly. The highest places at around 600,000 pounds or more than 250 tons. The Navy banned him from ever resupplying them, switched to smaller tins and increased food inspections. But the damage to public trust had been done. Canned foods acquired an association with food poisoning that lingered for decades. While public trust in canning had begun to take off around the world, Australia had a huge glut of sheep, Uruguay and Argentina had massive amounts of excess cattle, and salmon canneries across the US were eyeing up new markets. In the 19th century, Daniel Tallerman of the Australian Meat Agency ran a particularly enthusiastic PR campaign in London. He organized mass demonstrations of his products, where he served the most traditional British fare, beef and mutton pies, steak, kidney puddings, mutton rolls, all prepared with cheap meat shipped from the other side of the world. 
He also started selling penny dinners of Irish stew and dumplings to schools in deprived areas. An outbreak of the disease in British cattle around the same time caused a spike in the prices of domestic meat. As an affordable alternative, imports from the colonies were grudgingly accepted. The horrors of urban milk production could fill an entire episode themselves. Safe to say, it was incredibly gross and frequently dangerous, especially for children. Condensed milk was a safe and reliable alternative, building back trust in canned products, which offered cheap and convenient food, especially for the working class in urban areas. Like most technologies, the early days are not the glamorous ones. Quality can fall by the wayside in a race to undercut prices and get to market faster. This can be dangerous for the development of the entire industry. And creating safety protocols and transparency of supply chains is essential to making technologies more accepted. Even the most valuable and practical developments in food technology, like the tin can, were not safe from scandals and their repercussions. It's always good to have a crisis PR plan. Thank you very much for listening to Red to Green. Connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is Marina, like the sea, like the marine, and Schmidt with S-C-H-M-I-D-T. You can also find me by just typing in Red to Green on LinkedIn and finding me associated with it. If you enjoy our work, it would be amazing if you could support us by leaving a review, either on iTunes or recently Spotify also added a feature where you can rate podcasts and give us five stars. Thanks to Eleanor Thompson for doing ground research, Laura Toyman for editing, Celeste Gupta for audio editing, and Francisca Erbe for helping with social media. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. <laughs>